Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. Let us work! Let us work! Let us work! A wave of small protests took place across America in recent days, with protesters flouting social distancing rules, carrying rifles and waving flags. We can't hide in our homes and not produce for our families and for future generations because of a virus that may kill us. Trump offered his support, at the same time declaring governors should choose how and when to reopen states. Every state is very different. They're all beautiful, we love them all, but they're very, very different. Trump is as combative as ever in his public briefings, insistent he has made the right decisions at the right times, but his gaze is firmly fixed on the elections in November, and he must surely be on the horns of a dilemma about whether his ratings are high enough or whether he needs to move the date. Suzanne Lynch is Washington correspondent for the Irish Times. Suzanne, over the last week, we've seen protests popping up around the US. What are these about? Yeah, there's been a a new trend really only in the last week or so where a certain states around the country, and and it's worth noting, it's not everywhere. It's only in, in certain pockets of the country. It started in Michigan, a state which has been quite affected by the coronavirus outbreak, particularly around the Detroit area. But last week we saw protesters um, congregate at the state capitol in Lansing, a a small city in the middle of the state. It it was quite a relatively big protest uh, in terms of, relative to other protests. Some of those have only been a couple of hundred. This is more than a couple of thousand. And they were criticizing in particular the democratic governor, calling for her to look at uh, reopening the state and arguing that the uh, that the rules, the restrictions were too strict. This arbitrary and unconstitutional overreach has destroyed my career. But now a lot of uh, there was a lot of coverage about those uh, protests, and it did show that um, s- several of the protesters uh, were wearing uh, Trump-themed uh, paraphernalia. Uh, some were carrying guns, uh, and it for a lot of people brought back memories of kind of far-right rallies that we saw in. Uh, the United States more towards the beginning of the Trump presidency. Is there a risk, Suzanne, that these could become more widespread or turn into a, a mass movement? Well, it's it's quite interesting because um, what's happening is that, as I say, it is important to keep in mind that these are relatively small, some of these protests. Some of them may, may only have a few hundred people, but they have been spreading. That That is the reality. So last week we saw them in Michigan, in Minnesota, in Virginia, uh, over the weekend, there were then also more protests in Annapolis, quite close here to Washington, actually. That's the, the capital of Maryland and, uh, say, in Austin, Texas, for example. So they have been spreading. What is interesting is that uh, some of the social media companies are now aware of this. And uh, Facebook said that it had removed some of the advertisements, um, some of the posts promoting these kind of anti-stay-at-home rallies um, because they feel uh, they identified some people connected with far-right groups who were involved in organising those rallies, just some of them, they said. Um, so we're seeing a tension there with social media companies who are being criticised by some conservatives saying that Facebook, etc., is trying to stifle free speech. Um, but look, there are promises of more rallies throughout the country uh, in the next few days or weeks, but they are relatively small scale, it is important to note. And some health workers are holding counter-protests now, Suzanne, aren't they? Yes, that's that's right. There was a kind of a counter-protest there 
uh, by medical workers from across the state. Um, now, it was quite a small group of medical workers, but um, so we really saw it kind of captured real divides that are happening in this country. I work for Sparrow Hospital. How can I do my job if y'all idiots are blocking up the ways to get to the hospital? On the one hand, we've got a lot of growing chorus of voices, mostly on the right politically, who are calling for restrictions to be lifted. Um, but still, a, a, a larger majority of people polls are showing that most Americans still think that the restrictions should be in place. There are people dying every minute. What if it was your mother? What if it was your father? They are saying that no, that this is a health danger, that restrictions should not be lifted too soon, that it's premature, and uh, that essentially there is not enough testing in this country to ensure that it is ready to reopen at this point. These protests have attracted support from one important, but maybe not all that surprising source. Hasn't that put a lot of the state governors in, in very difficult positions? Absolutely. Uh, Donald Trump uh, has weighed in on this uh, issue. And really, this was sparked late last week on Friday when he tweeted uh, three tweets mentioning or referring to protests that were taking place in, in several states. So he tweeted, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota. And then thirdly, tweeted, liberate Virginia and added that uh, there was a threat to Second Amendment rights in Virginia. That's a reference uh, to Americans' right to bear arms. And in the last few months, the Democratic governor of Virginia has been uh, introducing new laws that are restricting gun ownership um, or regulating, I should say, str uh, more strictly uh, gun ownership in that state. So that was a reference to that by Donald Trump. So really it was kind of a, a superfluous issue than the issue at hand in terms of coronavirus. Uh, but that was seen as provocative. It was seen as inflammatory because the night before Donald Trump had uh, called a press conference in which he had announced a new kind of three-phase approach that the federal government was issuing uh, to governors. Our team of experts now agrees that we can begin the next front in our war, which we are calling opening up America again. But he was quick to stress that it was up to the governors and individual states to decide when these thresholds were met and it was their decision when to reopen their states. Uh, and again, this had already been a seesaw by the president because earlier in the week he had talked about having ultimate authority to reopen America even though very quickly constitutional scholars were quick to point out that wasn't the case under the US Constitution. So on Friday morning, when he starts tweeting about individual states, it was a complete contradiction of what he said the night before, when he essentially said, it's nothing to do with us. You have uh, the right to make a decision uh, on your own terms. Um, of course, the states that he picked were three states run by Democratic governors. There were, had also been protests in a small number of states run by Republican governors. He didn't mention those by name. And also they're electorally significant states. So Michigan is a real, uh, it's really one to watch in the elections. Uh, it's a swing state that went for Trump uh, last year. Uh, similarly in Minnesota, um, to lesser extent on Virginia too, which is Virginia is becoming much more democratic in recent years. We really saw that in the democratic, in the midterm elections of 2018. So um, yeah, look, Donald Trump then has been asked about this. Uh, he, he said that he believed um, these were great people. They've got cabin fever. They want to get back. They want their life back. Their life was taken away from them. He talked about seeing American flags all over the place uh, when he watched these protests. Um, 
So uh, I think it is significant that he's weighing in on this issue, obviously with an eye to the elections in November. What is the three-phase approach to opening up America's economy? So this was announced last week uh, during the White House coronavirus briefing, and essentially it sets out a series of uh, criteria. Um, It says that states have to show a downward trajectory of new cases for 14 days before they can start reopening states. So they say they talk about phase one, where some restrictions are loosened, but for example, schools are still closed, uh, but it does permit uh, social gatherings of less than 10 people. Then the next stage uh, is opening of big sports venues and bars, for example. Uh, still some social restricting measures. Uh, and then the phase three is pretty much, you know, complete reopening. Um, it does warn that people with underlying conditions, elderly people should remain at home. But it uh, essentially recommends a full return of all employees to the workplace, for example. Now, the, the flaw, if you like, um, or some would say maybe the genius of Donald Trump, because he's showing that he's trying to do something, and yet he is leaving the responsibility on the shoulders of governors. So if this all goes wrong, he can point to the fact that it was governor's fault, it was their choice to reopen or not. Uh, The fact is that these guidelines are not uh, binding. So, you know, it's up, there was a question about this in the last few days for Trump and his advisors. Well, what if states move too early on this and reopen before they have the downward trajectory, Um, which is also an issue, issue because of the lack of testing here, And it was kind of replied, well, you know, they are the people to make that judgment. So what we can see is a lot of wriggle room here for individual states to choose whether or not to reopen. And we're already seeing now at this point, some states are starting to reopen. Georgia, for example, is really the first state to start announcing big uh, reopenings um, as early as this Friday. By taking this measured action, we will get Georgians back to work safely without undermining the progress that we all have made. Things like bowling alleys, um, hairdressers, barbers, tattoo parlors are even included in that. And on April 27, the governor has said there in Georgia that restaurants, in in dining restaurants and theatres will be open too. Now, I will say that, you know, when we have more people moving around, we're probably going to see our cases continue to go up. But we're a lot better prepared for that now than we were over a month ago. I can tell you, I don't give a damn about politics right now. On Monday night, Suzanne Trump tweeted that he's signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration to the US. What's going on there? Yeah, that was a real surprise. I mean, Trump gave his regular press briefing here in the evening around half five or six p.m. um, and didn't really mention anything about immigration. Uh, And then late on Monday night, around 10 p.m., he tweeted that he was going to sign an executive order um, temporarily suspending immigration into the United States. He said it's in light of the attack from what he calls the invisible enemy and the need to protect the jobs of American citizens. This is what he said. Now, this sent a lot of people fumbling to understand exactly what he meant. It appears that some people, at least in the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for immigration policy, we're taken by surprise about this, uh, that this executive order has not yet been drafted. So we're waiting to find out more details about that. Um, But it is an indication of his attempt to kind of isolate the United States from the rest of the world. And from the beginning of this crisis, Donald Trump has pointed to the fact 
that he was one of the first countries to ban incoming flight from a country. I believe there were no deaths, zero deaths at the time I closed up the country. And you should say thank you very much for good judgment. At the end of January, he introduced a ban uh, on flight on Chinese passengers coming in from China. Now, American citizens and other citizens who were on those flights were allowed to enter. So we had an estimated 40,000 or more people who did come in on those flights since the end of January. But he has consistently pointed to this as an early indication that he was on top of this crisis. So in that vein, uh, this suggestion that he may again clamp down on immigration and travel into the United States would be in keeping. Uh, to how he you know, instinctively approached this at the beginning. He, of course, then introduced a, a ban for Europe, not Schengen countries, and then Ireland and Britain. Um, so it would be in keeping with that. It is also interesting that during one of the press briefings in recent days, when an official was briefing about the latest on coronavirus, he did ask the official to talk about the wall, the border wall with Mexico. So it obviously has been playing on his mind some, some way. But we don't know the details yet. Um, this is for legal immigration, people who are applying for green cards, for applying for work permits to work here in the United States. Um, and maybe a lot of people who, family members of people who are already working here in the US and um, who were due to travel over, they could be affected. In one sense, though, this may be more political. How much it is going to affect immigration in the US remains to be seen because effectively there is a ban already. Embassies, U.S. embassies around the world have effectively stopped issuing visas to travelers. And there's been such a restriction on travel that it could be a moot point. It will depend on how long, I think, uh, this restriction will last. And then, and finally, on that point, the other issue is, is, is his, his legal ability to do so. He's tried the option of executive orders to introduce immigration policy before. Um, most uh, memorably, his Muslim ban, which was introduced in the first few weeks of its presidency back in 2017, um, but this was immediately subject to court um, objections. You know, a lot of these measures end up in court and could be very delayed. So uh, even if he signs his executive order, there will probably be some kind, or there could be uh, some kind of challenge to it. The death toll in the US is now over 42,000. Is Trump still adamant he acted in enough time? He is. He is, um, again, as I mentioned there, he keeps uh, highlighting the fact that he implemented a travel ban. He is now saying that the United States is doing more testing than anywhere else in the world. In fact, I think I read where if you add up every other country in the world, we've tested more. If you're talking about per capita numbers, you know, that's not that's not the case. Uh, on Monday evening, he name checked a number of countries, including Ireland, saying that America in some states in America, the number of people per capita, per 1,000 people, was lower than in countries including Ireland, but also Germany, the UK, lots of other countries. And of course, that is the case because here some states are not that affected. It's quite uneven um, the way coronavirus is playing out. Um, so he can point to these specific areas of, of the United States. Of course, no one really knows how many cases uh, are actually here in the US. A worrying trend overnight was that in Los Angeles, a preliminary finding of... Um, of an antibody test to suggest that, that there are many, many more cases of coronavirus in Los Angeles County uh, that have been assumed. So I think that is really um, suggesting, it's really hitting on something that's the real problem here is the lack of testing. It has increased. Um, it's now, there's been more over about 4 million tests completed across the country, but experts are saying, you know, you need between 500 to 700,000 tests a day really between now and the next few weeks to 
to assess if you can really safely begin reopening the country. And in fact, um, you know, that's about three times as many tests that's happening now. There's also been reports that uh, the FDA here, the authority, the, the federal authority that governs these tests, has effectively loosened some rules uh, in relation to antibody tests. More than 90 companies have been given the green light to produce these tests and to sell them, but some of them are inaccurate and unreliable. So you've got a massive issue with testing here that is feeding into the broader issue of uncertainty about how many cases are really uh, happening here. And that, of course, feeds into the conversation about when to reopen the country. But look, the, the numbers are still very, very high here. Like in New York, um, another 4,700 people tested positive on Monday alone. Again, 478 people died in New York on, between Sunday and Monday. Still a big number. It is down, though, uh, from the from the daily averages of around 700. So in New York, there is a suggestion that it is that the curve is being flattened. But there are still concerns about other parts of the country, for example, Boston. Um, there are quite a few cases there and obviously places like Detroit as well. In terms of the election uh, looming towards the end of the year, there has been speculation that Trump might defer it from the 3rd of November. Uh, it, it, it is very interesting because this, of course, is taking place in an election year and voters across America are due to go to the polls in less than seven months time. Um, the conversations are beginning to happen here in the United States about the realities of holding an election in a, a time of coronavirus. What has happened so far is that the primary calendar has been uh, delayed and has been amended. So a series of states had been due to hold their primaries in which states select their candidates. So the Democratic primary is obviously the most important one because in the Republican primary, it's we, we know that it's going to be Donald Trump will be the nominee. On the Democratic side, we already had this long primary process. Now, in one sense, the timing was, was quite good for Democrats because coronavirus uh, began to spread here in the US just after Joe Biden had made his breakthrough and was becoming the, the presumed nominee. He won Super Tuesday um, in early March, on the 3rd of March, and then we saw lots of candidates falling in behind him, and he is essentially going to be the Democratic Party's nominee. Uh, so it doesn't matter as much that a lot of the primaries that were supposed to take place in April and May and have now been delayed will not take place at this point. There's also been a disruption, though, to the big political event of the summer, which was the Democratic National Convention in July. That attracts tens of thousands of people. It's where the nominee for president is selected. That has already been uh, changed and has been put back to August, to the 17th of August, the week before the Republican Convention for Donald Trump will presumably be crowned as the nominee. Now, there's a debate here about whether those two conventions will actually take place in that form or will there be some kind of a, a virtual convention? That is very, very possible at this point. And then in November, um, obviously, the election proper. And it's not just a presidential election. All the seats in the House of Representatives are up and a proportion of the Senate seats. So a lot of elections down ballot happening on the 3rd of November. So the big debate now is about postal voting. Uh, and some uh, election officials are trying to explore that. Again, it's become politicized because some Republicans and Donald Trump have questioned the legitimacy of this way of, of voting. Um, they believe that it actually favors Democrats and not themselves. So we expect that to be a big debate. But I would presume that the election will happen on the 3rd of November, but it may be in a slightly different form than we were used to in previous years. Trump says, of course, he's going to, to win in a landslide um, in the election. Uh, and he's, he's more generally being criticized for his daily briefings. 
for being lacking in real concrete information about coronavirus. And and he's had a few uh, real outbursts lately, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a feeling here that the coronavirus briefings have, in a sense, replaced his campaign rallies. If I came up with a tablet, you take it and, and this plague is gone. They'll say Trump did a terrible job, terrible, terrible, because that's their soundbite. That's the political soundbite. They know the great job we've done. Trump is a leader who thrives on um, these visceral live events. He's, his background, obviously, is as a TV star. He likes an audience. Uh, he thrives on division. And uh, that's what we're seeing in small screen uh, in his coronavirus briefings every evening. And there's a real sense and um, a criticism here that he is using them to basically campaign that they are light on detail about coronavirus strategy and are strong on him uh, glorifying his own approach to the coronavirus pandemic and how he's handling it. Where we built hospital beds at a number that nobody's ever seen before, where we did the ventilators that we just discussed at a level that nobody's ever seen before. Nobody can even believe other foreign countries, even powerful countries, can't believe what we were able to do. In saying that, it could also work both ways. Joe Biden has also been pushed off the campaign trail. He's holed up in De- Delaware in his home. Um, and both have had to take, you you know, you v- virtual campaigning, essentially, taking social media. Donald Trump is obviously much stronger on this. Um, his, um, you know, the campaign ads on Facebook, on Twitter in 2016 were a huge part of his victory. So he's quite comfortable on this, on these kind of platforms. So that, that could benefit him. And also he's got the benefit, the advantage of being an incumbent and having this uh, daily audience every single day. In saying that, it could be a strategy on the part of Joe Biden. Why get involved at this point when Donald Trump is doing a very good job of um, exposing his own flaws as a leader every day on live TV? So Joe Biden and his advisors may be choosing to sit this one out and may have judged that there is little to be gained by him weighing in in a, in a forceful way on this issue. He's had a good couple of weeks. Barack Obama endorsed him last week. That kind of leadership doesn't just belong in our state capitals and mayor's offices. It belongs in the White House. Bernie Sanders has endorsed him, Elizabeth Warren has endorsed him. So, you know, he's quietly building up these endorsements that are, are going to be important. And, you know, we expect in a few months, as the summer goes on here, Joe Biden will be front and centre. Uh, particularly if the debates, the traditional debates happen in September and October, they surely will. Uh, maybe they will be done, you know, in a, in a studio without audience. We saw that at the end of the Democratic debate, for example. Again, that could be good for Joe Biden rather than Trump. Trump who loves a crowd, who loves a rally. Um, so, look, it remains to be seen. Uh, but Trump's support has stayed strong enough during the coronavirus uh, pandemic. However, in the first few weeks, he, like many other leaders, like Boris Johnson, for example, even with our own Leo Varadkar, he kind of gained from a rally around the leader rally uh, and support from his, his uh, citizens. That has kind of um, fallen in the last few weeks and it's back down around, you know, 44% slightly lower than where he usually is. So that could be a worry, I think, for Trump uh, the longer this coronavirus goes on. Suzanne, thank you. In the coming weeks, our experts will deal with questions about coronavirus and the current situation. Send your queries in audio file or text format by email to coronavirus at irishtimes.com. My thanks to Suzanne Brennan and JJ Vernon who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow.